So uh, we are in this series on Mark. If you're new here, we've been just working through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, if you remember, uh, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, but he gets betrayed by one of his friends, and then he gets brought in this sort of mob justice instance before a group called the Sanhedrin, which are these religious leaders, and they put him on a sort of trial, but it's really more mob justice, and they don't like what he has to say. And so when we pick up here in Mark 15, it's kind of the next morning. Um, I got to open up to Mark 15 too. Okay, so Mark 15, 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. I'll stop for a minute. If you guys are always wondering, I was always wondering about the lights. Like, why do they flash on and off? We think it's the air conditioning turning on, and it just, like, depowers the whole system. So... If you've ever wondered about the lights. Uh, okay, so back to the text. Uh, Mark 15, what's going on here? Jesus is arrested, and he's, he's brought to this sort of trial in the middle of the night. And then here we read in Mark 15 that he's brought before a guy named Pilate. And in order to understand this, we have to know a little bit about the Roman legal system. We all know that Rome is the authority in Israel. Israel's underneath uh, foreign oppression, foreign leadership. But even within Israel, there's some sort of ethnically Jewish leaders. They're called the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. It's all the people listed here in verse 1. So they're uh, the Jewish leadership. They're one layer. But then above that is the Roman leadership. And the, the Jewish leaders, the, the religious leaders, they're trying to get rid of Jesus because he's a challenge to the status quo. He, they don't like what he has to say. They don't, they don't believe he is who he says he is, so they want to try and get rid of him. But they can't actually kill him. They can't carry out capital punishment. Only Rome can do that. So they take him to the Roman leadership, and that's who Pilate is. Uh, Pilate, which is not to be confused with Joseph Pilate, who's the guy who invented the Pilates workouts. <laughs> little tidbit of information. Which, if you've never done a Pilates workout, it's actually like really hard. So I encourage you to do it. Uh, but Pilate, not Pilate, He's the Roman, he's called a prefect, which means he's a sort of Roman leader. Uh, well, he is a Roman leader. He's a sort of military leader. He has military leadership, and he's a really mean guy. We know from other historians that Pilate is not a nice guy. A guy named Josephus, who's a historian, writes about Pilate. He's described as, by nature, rigid and stubbornly harsh and an exceedingly wrathful man which is not really what you want on your gravestone. But that's who Pilate is. One, one story to illustrate that, Pilate, um, one time he took the temple funds, which basically think the tithe that was given to take care of the temple, and he takes those funds and he builds an aqueduct with it, and then the Jewish people are understandably very mad about it. So they protest, and Pilate, not liking the protest, has his soldiers dress up as commoners, go in among the crowd, among the protesters, and at his signal, they throw off their robes and they brutally beat and kill the protesters. And that's how Pilate rules. Pilate rules with an iron fist. He utilizes violence, he utilizes fear to maintain control. But that's not, Pilate's not the only Roman ruler to do that. The, the nation of Israel is used to that. Even before the Romans were there, there was a period of time where they, they were ruled over by Greek rulership, who was pretty oppressive. And then there was a time period uh, where the Jewish leaders overthrew those Greeks, 
And then around the year 63 BC, the Romans came in and the Romans took control. And ever since the Romans had taken control, there was these constant rebellions and revolutions because they don't want to be under foreign oppressive leadership. So they keep fighting back. They keep trying to overthrow the Romans. And all of this is necessary information to understand what's going on here because this is hotly contested land. Even today in the exact same city of Jerusalem, I mean, we don't get it because, you know, we get to gather in this super nice place and there's air conditioning. We don't really know what it's, most of us don't know what it's like to grow up in a world of war. But, you know, even in the city of Jerusalem today, people know what it's like. And Jesus would have known what it was like. In the time right after Jesus was born, uh, there's a whole lot of upheaval because one king dies, one ruler dies, and then a bunch of people claim to be king. They fight against this king, that king fights against that king. And that's just a fact of life. That was a fact of life for Jesus. So this atmosphere of uprisings and people claiming to be the rightful ruler or the king is, is really key to under, understanding this text. I'll just show you one example, not, not bog us down with a bunch of, bunch of uh, names and dates. But same guy, Josephus, wrote about this guy named Simon of Perea, which doesn't matter, but you can put that on a Jeopardy question or something. So talking about Simon, and this is from the year 4 BC, which ironically is about the time right after Jesus was born. I say ironically because the dating system of like BC before Christ, but Jesus was actually born around 5 or 4. That's another useless one. Um, I gotta stay focused. This man was elevated at the disorderly state of things and was so bold as to put a diadem on his head. Diadem's a crown. While a certain number of the people stood by him, and by them he was declared to be a king, and he thought himself more worthy of that dignity than anyone else. He burnt down the royal palace at Jericho and plundered what was left in it. He also set fire to many other of the king's houses in several places of the country, utterly destroyed them, and permitted those that were with him to take what was left in them for prey. So why are we reading about this slave guy who claims to be a king? Well, when Pilate asks here in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? When Jesus is bound before him and he says, are you the king of the Jews? There's a whole lot behind that question. What Pilate is saying is, who do you think you are? I'm the authority in the region. Caesar is the one in charge. Rome is the one in charge. Who are you claiming to be? Because in Pilate's mind, this, this guy gets brought before him, claiming to be a king. He's just like one of the other guys, trying to, trying to get rid of me, trying to get rid of Rome. So there's a whole lot behind that question. Are you the king of the Jews? Um, anybody ever seen that show, Who's the Boss? You know, Tony Danza, he's a living housekeeper. Yeah, a couple people. So it's kind of like that, but in a way more serious way. That whole show is about exploring who's the boss of the household. This is who's the king, who's the rightful king. And some of you are thinking to yourself, Matt, aren't you way too young to have ever seen Who's the Boss? I'll say it's on TV Land and YouTube if you've also never seen it. It's actually a really funny show. Uh, the question in sight here is, if Jesus is the king, what kind of king is he? Or, I guess said another way, who really is Jesus? That's the question in light. And if you're here and you're still kind of thinking to that question, hey, I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus guy, you're in the right place because for thousands of years now, people have been asking that exact same question. Who is Jesus? Jesus' response to this whole thing is really interesting to me. 
he responds with, you have said so. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says back, you've said so. Why doesn't he just say yes or no? Well, part of me wants to think Jesus is just being super sassy. Like, you have said so. Just kind of, you know, take that, Pilate. I'm going to be sassy. But that's not what, we, not, not what a lot of scholars think is going on here. But what's going on here is this Pilate, uh, Jesus' response is really deep. There's a lot of meaning to it. Jesus can't simply respond with just a simple yes because it's not going to communicate the full meaning of what Jesus is saying. Now, the phrase is really hard to, to translate into English because if it's just woodenly translated from Greek, it's you, you say. You can't really translate that fully, they capture all that in English. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out the fact that it's Pilate's choice of words, not Jesus's. He's saying, yes, but. He's affirming the statement, but he's saying, you're not, you're not grasping a hold of everything here. Now, this is really interesting to me for a couple of reasons, but first, when I was in college, I had a really hard time with the question, well, Jesus never claimed to be, claimed to be God. I didn't really ever know what to say to that, and what we see from reading last week and from reading this week, absolutely Jesus claimed to be God. It's hard to see sometimes if we don't read the text with like historical background and cultural context, but Jesus last week in chapter 14 says yes to being the Son of God. He says yes to being the divine judge who's going to judge the entire world, and he also here says, yeah, I am the king. And in the Jewish mind, there's only one God, there's only one divine judge, and there's only one king, and that's God himself. And Jesus claims to be him. So one, I think that's really, this is really interesting for that reason. But secondly, Jesus' statement is also really interesting because he has to, has to point out that in Pilate's mind, he's asking, are you a king? What he's thinking is, are you this brutal, ruthless kind of guy like me, and are you going to try and kill me? Are you trying to overthrow us? That's what Pilate has in mind when he's saying, are you the king? And Jesus' response points to the fact that what Jesus means by kingship is actually service and laying down his life. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, but not in the way understood by Rome or the like, religious leaders who are collaborating with Rome or the other various Jewish would-be kings. Jesus is indeed the king, but he's a different kind of king. His understanding of being a king means service and laying down his life. Jesus says all kinds of things about leadership that are just so backwards from the way that the world thinks about leadership. So Jesus' statement is, is very telling. Just like last week we read uh, with the Sanhedrin, he's, he's flipping things on its head. So the Sanhedrin says, uh, are you the son of the blessed one? He says, yeah, I am. And, then he's, and, and Jesus is on trial. And Jesus points out, you think that you have me on trial, but I tell you at the end of the days, I'm the one who's going to judge you. And the Sanhedrin is so upset by that, the high priest rips his cloak and just says, blasphemy, we've got to kill this guy. And then here, Jesus is saying, you say so. You say that I'm a king. But both Pilate and the Sanhedrin have such hard hearts, they can't see what's going on. They have Jesus face to face, but they can't see who Jesus really is. Let's pick up back, back in verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. 
But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, this word amazed is really interesting because if you track the whole theme of amazement and awe through the Gospel of Mark, it comes up a bunch. So people are amazed at Jesus' teaching. Jesus heals someone, and people are amazed. Jesus casts out demons. People are amazed. Jesus is amazed at people's lack of faith. And here, Pilate is amazed. Here's this man, Jesus, who's brought before the Roman ruler, this brutal, ruthless guy, and he's, he's asked a question. He responds interestingly, and then he gets accused more and more, and he doesn't respond. Now, this word amazed is, is really interesting, too, because it means to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed by something. And Pilate is both probably impressed and disturbed at the same time. Because if he was just a normal revolutionary rebel guy, he probably would fight back. He's getting accused of things. He doesn't say anything back. You see in verse 3 that the chief priest accused him of many things, but he doesn't say anything. I mean, I would if I were in his situation. Jesus is the king. Jesus is God. He has every right to be able to, to, to just kind of like, you know, kick Pilate in the chest and throw off the chains like Samson. He has every right to, but he doesn't. And so much of me wants to just say, Jesus, defend yourself. Do something. But he doesn't. And I think it's that's really, that's key to understanding the person of Jesus. He, he doesn't do anything. Like Pilate, I'm pretty amazed at that. Jesus, who is the rightful king, is willing to remain silent. And and in doing that, Jesus teaches us a whole lot about life and about real leadership. Let's pick up back in verse 6. As we read on, we learn, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas, who was in prison with the insurrectionists, who had committed murder, in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So remember what's going on. Uh, They're in the city of Jerusalem at the Passover time. The city's swelled. They actually have to pass these laws to expand protection because so many people are coming into the city of Jerusalem. And as we saw in verse 1, it's very early in the morning. So there's this group of people who are there very early in the morning and they're watching what's going on. And they say, hey, Pilate, we want you to do what you always do. And this practice that we see, it's a, it was a practice for the Roman rulers to, to kind of be a safety valve. Say, say, hey, I'm actually a really nice guy. I'll release a prisoner to you. You even get to pick who it is. It's this way to, to relieve the pressure of all these unhappy people. These people come up, hey, do what you always do. And then we, the readers, are introduced to this guy named Barabbas. Um, and he's described as having been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Remember, this time period is a time of upheaval. There's, there's all sorts of rebellions and, and tried revolution, but they continuously fail. And, and Barabbas is one of those guys who tries to fight, maybe kills somebody, but he fails. He ultimately gets arrested and sentenced to death for it. And what Mark is doing here is setting up this stark contrast. Let's read on in verse 9. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. 
Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So this distinction that Mark has set up, it's actually really, really highlighted in Matthew's gospel where where he records that Barabbas, his first name is actually Jesus, or in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. So you have Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and you have Jesus Barabbas, the insurrectionist murderer guy. So these two people are painted as really, really stark contrasts. And the people are given the choice. They can either choose to have Jesus of Nazareth released to them, or they can have Barabbas released to them. And we, we see here what ends up happening. But what they can do is they can choose the guy who's familiar. Hey, we don't like the Romans. That guy killed Romans. We like him. Or they can choose Jesus who said crazy things like, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus doesn't fit into their box at all. And so the people select Barabbas. Barabbas gets released and Jesus is handed over to be crucified. What, what Mark is doing here is he's creating all sorts of these stark contrasts. So there's Barabbas and Jesus, and there's also Jesus and Pilate and the religious leaders. Uh, Pilate, we see here, he wanted to satisfy the crowd. He's a smart guy. All Jewish men are in the city of Jerusalem. He's already had a bunch of rebellions. He's already had a bunch of tried revolution. And now they're all here, and if he's going to stir up the crowd, he's going to have a big problem on his hands. And what we see from the wording that Mark gives us is that Pilate saw what was going on behind the scenes. He, he sees that the Jewish leaders handed him over because of jealousy. He even gives him a second chance. Well, what should I do with this guy then? And he gives, he gives him another chance, but in order to satisfy the crowd, he hands Jesus over. Pilate's just looking out for himself. He's trying to, okay, calm down, everybody. Calm down. I'll do what you want. He's just trying to look out for himself. And it's not only Pilate who's looking out for himself, but it's also the religious leaders. We see Mark says that they they handed Jesus over out of self-interest. It was because of of jealousy that they handed Jesus over. And before, it's really easy to point the finger. I can't believe those people would do that. Such evil people. What about us? What about you? What about me? How often are our lives governed by simply self-interest? How often do I act just just out of pure self-interest? But what about Jesus? Jesus acts the complete opposite. His his attitude, his motivation, his actions are the complete opposite of self-interest. Whereas he could have saved himself, he didn't. He actually chooses to humble himself. He actually chooses to give up his rights. He didn't choose to save his own skin. He doesn't choose to fight back. He had the complete power and right to do something. He could have. We would all say, yep, Jesus, if there's one person in the world who could have done it, it would have been him. But he doesn't. And I think there's a whole lot of meaning in that. And, the, and what it is, is that Jesus had a really clear sense of why he was doing it. Jesus doesn't fight back because there's a really clear sense of, of why he's going through all this. He has a clear sense that this is actually what's supposed to happen. He knows that the agonizing beating and humiliation and death that lies before him, he sees that and he embraces it. We read later in the letter 
to the Hebrews, it says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus did this. And, and he, Jesus knows what the cross means for his, his creation. He knows what it means for us. He knows what it means for you and for me. And there's a whole lot of power in that, that Jesus knows. Jesus just sees it all happening, and, and he chooses to humble himself. He chooses to not act like the brutal, ruthless king. He chooses to not try and fight back, but he chooses to just embrace it. And we're going to talk about, in the next coming weeks, about the crucifixion as we get to it in the text, but the crucifixion is really good news for us. It's the point in the universe where everything shifts. It's the, it's the time when the world order is shifted on its head. And that includes personal forgiveness of sins, absolutely. But it includes so much more than that. But we just stick with tonight's text. I think we can look at it from another layer and just see where we see ourselves in this story. On the one hand, I think we see ourselves in Barabbas. Uh, if you want to know what it's like or what it looks like, a really clear image of being a human being guilty of sin and rebellion against God, we can see ourselves in Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty. Everybody knew it. You've been guilty. I've been guilty. We've all been guilty, and we all know it. Barabbas was sentenced to death for it. And what happens is that Jesus gets killed and Barabbas gets freed. Jesus gets killed and I get set free. Jesus gets killed, and you get set free. But we receive so much more than Barabbas. Barabbas just gets off the hook. We don't know what happens to him. Historical record doesn't record it. But he just gets set off the hook. You and I have been given something so much more. We've been set free, but we've also been set apart, and we've been washed clean. We've been given a new community. We've been given a new mission. We've been given a new spirit. We've been given so much more than Barabbas. So we can see ourselves in that story in part, but we can also see Jesus's model to us in it all. Jesus' silence, it, it models something for us. As I was reading through this text, and it's okay, so Jesus is the king who humbles himself. There was, there was one text that really clearly came to mind. Uh, we, a couple months ago, or several months ago, probably a year ago or so now, we're working through the letter of Philippians, and this, this verse came up, and this is perfect. This is the perfect illustration of, of what I'm talking about. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, my first reaction to, to Paul's command is, come on, Paul, you don't expect me to do that. How could I? I mean, I can't, there's no way I could possibly live up to Jesus' model of humility. But what if we actually took Paul seriously? What if I took Paul seriously? I mean, what if our community... What if the Christian community was known by its humility and selflessness instead of our pride and our arrogance? If we really believed that and we really took it seriously, I think that would, that would change a whole lot. As I was reading and thinking through all this, uh, it was really interesting, this, this quote popped back up on my Twitter feed that came from two years ago, but it's really applicable because I read this article. 
It was all about how we as Americans are super privileged, which we are, and how we, what we're doing to further the mission of Jesus around the world. And it's a really great quote because I think it captures the heart of Jesus and it shows what Jesus has done for us. And, I'll, and we'll put it up. It says, The end of the unjust suffering of the world's oppressed poor will start with the voluntary suffering of the non-poor. The end of the unjust suffering of the world's oppressed poor will start with the voluntary suffering of the non-poor. I think this, this quote's amazing, and it hit home because this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, who's the king, he chooses to humble himself. And, and as we read either in 2 Corinthians 8 at the beginning or in Philippians 2, he makes himself poor for us. He humbles himself for us. And if we really believe that, and we really believe that we're supposed to follow the model of Jesus, it should make a huge difference. It should affect us. So a couple of things as we, as we really move forward to taking communion. Um, a couple of things to think about. Just, okay, here's what God did. Here's a story about God. And what do I, what's my part in it? What do I do about it? First, the question is, is Jesus your king? So Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes, but you don't even know what that means. The question for us is, is Jesus your, your king? I don't know about you, but if Jesus really is who he says he is, then I do not want to live life apart from him. If he's really the creator, then I want to live life the way that he designed and created it to be lived. If he's really the judge, I want to live life shooting at his standard. If he's really the king, I want to live life under his leadership. Now, if you guys, not many of you know my story, but there was a time in my life when Jesus was not my king. I for sure would have checked the box Christian, but Jesus' relationship in my life, it was more like I was the king. I was the guy sitting on the throne making all decisions, and Jesus was kind of like the magician that I'd call in every once in a while. I have this bad problem. I don't know what to do. Call in the magician. That's, the, that's really the role that Jesus played in my life. He was this kind of, you know, self-help guru, kind of came in. There was a really, there's there was a season in my life where it was like, whew, draw a line in the sand. Now Jesus is my king. And there has to be some point in time where we make that shift, where we make that decision, because Jesus is king with a kingdom, and we either stand in it with him or we stand against it, outside of it. And if you're here and you've, you've never made that decision and you're like, hey, tonight I want to make that decision, we're going to invite some of our leaders up here at the end of the night. Come and pray with them. They're just simply talking to God. And tonight could be the night that you draw a line in the sand. Secondly, for those of us who, who are living under the king's leadership in Jesus' kingdom, if Jesus really is the king, what difference is that making? What, how is that affecting me? How does it affect how I spend my money? How does it affect how I spend my time? How does it affect how I, I treat my coworkers? How does it affect what I look at on the computer? Um, I'll share another example how this kind of smacked me upside the head this week. I, I'm reading, so I'm doing the prep for this teaching, and then I'm also reading through the Bible, and uh, happened to be earlier this week reading Proverbs 3, and I got to Proverbs 3.34, and I was just kind of stopped in my tracks, really taken aback. I'll read it to you. Proverbs 3.34 says, He mocks, that's God, mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. 
God mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. So here I am, you know, writing my thing about, okay, Jesus is humility. We've got to follow this. And, and then I'm stuck in my tracks like, wow, dang, I mock. And, and I've never thought about it in that terms. I've never thought of like my habit of, my, my probably bad habit of mocking against how I think I'm pretty, pretty much a humble guy. I was just confronted by my own sin and my own inability to live up to it. But the first, first response from Jesus is just forgiveness and grace. Absolutely, there's forgiveness and grace. And, and it's not just, wow, whoa, I'm such a terrible sinner. But now it's, I know a clear way I can grow. I know a clear thing to pray for. And it's not just, you know, smack on the wrist, stop sinning. But it's about growing into living in Jesus' kingdom. You know, really what I heard from God was, Matt, if you want to live life abundant, and you want to live life in my kingdom, here's what it looks like. Humility, not mocking. Uh, third, when we, when we read scripture, uh, what we want to do and what we take out of it, Mark, the writer of this whole story, is doing something for his original audience. So there are people who are living in Rome, familiar with the Roman style of leadership of violence and brutality. They're familiar with it. And, and what Mark's doing for his original audience is encouraging them. Like, hey, you guys are being put on trial and killed for standing firm in the truth, for standing up for what you believe in. Jesus, Jesus went through the exact same thing. Jesus was put before Roman leadership and sentenced to death. Jesus did it. You guys are doing it. That's what Mark's doing for his original audience. And, and you and I probably will never have to be faced with that fact to, you know, stand before leadership and, and be killed for our faith. I mean, you might be, but you probably won't be. But in the same way that Mark is encouraging his original audience to stand firm for the truth, no matter what the consequences are, Mark, for us, is encouraging us to stand firm for the truth. So it probably won't mean martyrdom for us, but it'll probably, or it might mean paying more money because we're unwilling to cheat the system. It, it might mean losing a job because you have to stand up against some sort of unethical practice. But the encouragement from Mark is just like Jesus in the face of punishment and death stood up for the truth, for who he is. So we too are called to live with integrity and stand up for the truth. And and behind it all, in order to do any of this and in order to live any of it out, we absolutely need God's strength. We can't do it alone. There's no way that I can possibly live up to humility and stop mocking apart from God's strength. I need God's forgiveness and I need God's strength in order to do it. In order to live with integrity, in order to live lives of humility underneath the king, we need God's strength to do it. 